All right, somebody tell me what tomorrow is. Labor Day, and Labor Day means what? No work, right? That's why we celebrate hardworking people is we don't work. And so tomorrow we are off. And I, uh, for, for most of us in this room, tomorrow is an excused absence. That uh, if you don't work, it's because your office is closed, the church office is closed, schools are closed. But sometimes we all miss, and we have to give a reason for missing. Sometimes we miss work, we miss school, and we give a reason for missing. And so uh, as we think about Labor Day tomorrow, I I thought it would be kind of neat to hear some excuses people have given for not showing up to work or to school. All right? First one, for example, somebody wrote their boss a note and said, I could not be at work yesterday because I did not want to give up the parking space in front of my house. Okay, never mind. All right. Somebody wrote one and said, I got hit by a turkey while riding a bike. I had a heart attack yesterday morning, but I'm all better now. My wife burned all my clothes and I had nothing to wear. My psychic told me to stay home. And then one of my favorites, a lady said, I just couldn't get out of bed. I was up all night. The police wouldn't leave me alone. They kept asking me questions because they found a dead body in my backyard. All right? Now, if you want to have some fun sometime, ask teachers about crazy excuses they've gotten at school. These are actual excuses people have given. Somebody wrote, please excuse my son from P.E. He's under a doctor's cares. Please execute him. Someone said, excuse Lisa from school yesterday. She was sick and I had her shot. Somebody else wrote this. Please excuse John for being out on January 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, 32nd, and 33rd. Please excuse Roland from P.E., He fell out of a tree yesterday and misplaced his hip. And then this one, which hopefully you will get after lunch today. Please excuse Ray. He had loose vowels yesterday. Vowels. All right. Take your Bibles. Turn to Hebrews 12. The 830 service let their joy from those jokes exude more than you did. I heard that, Mr. York, and you're on my list. Hebrews chapter 12. We covered the first part of this a couple of weeks ago, but then we're going to talk about the second part or kind of in the middle of this chapter this morning as we talk about continuing this discussion of of hardship. And there is a reason that I read those excuses, because what I want us to understand today, here's the big idea I want us to get, is that sometimes in life when difficulties come, our first reaction is to try to get out of them, is to try to end them, to try to short circuit them. And what I want us to understand today is this. This isn't on the screen anywhere, but you can write this down. Many believers miss out on God's blessings because they don't endure God's trials. Many believers do not get God's blessings because they fail to maneuver or to endure God's trials. You see, one of the things as believers that we like to do is that when difficulties come our way, when trials come our way, when hardships come our ways, we try everything we can to get out of them or to figure them out on our own 
or to try to short circuit what's happening instead of trusting the Lord as we walk through them day by day. And what Scripture teaches over and over and over again is that if we want to live effectively as believers in Jesus Christ, part of what we are to do is to maneuver efficiently and as God sees fit through the difficulties that life might bring us. And so what happens is when we move around or short circuit or go away from God's plan, then we miss out on blessings that He might have for us. Now, there are lots of ways that people try to get out of difficult situations. Not all of them are bad, but in the situation, the question is, are you trusting the Lord in the midst of it, or are you trusting your own ability to try to get out? Just think about in your life, in times when uh, a problem has presented itself, a difficulty has come, someone has has come along and something's happened in your life, uh, you've lost a loved one, you've lost a job, you've had financial hit, whatever it might be, you've had difficulty in your life. What's the first thing that happens? Is the first thing that happens you immediately go to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to navigate through this. Lord, help me to get through this. Lord, how do you want me to respond in this? Lord, how do you want me to walk through this? Or does your mind immediately begin to turn about solutions and different plans and strategies and ways that you can get around it? Because we are in danger when we do that of missing out on God's blessings. The title on the back of your order of service that I wrote there is, Can I Opt Out? Opt outs become a, 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 a kind of in vogue term, or it's been back in the culture for a few years now, based on uh, spam emails, right? Email spam, I don't know if you know this, is at an all-time record high. I saw a statistic that just blew me away. That something like 70 to 75% of all emails sent in America is spam. Now, I have one of those filters on my accounts that it keeps it out before it ever gets to me. And so I don't ever see it. And I have two or three different email accounts. And I decided to go to one of my email accounts this week, Gmail, which has probably one of the toughest spam filters. And I just wanted to see, because I had cleaned it out about two or three weeks ago, how many spam messages I'd received in a couple of weeks, and it was in the hundreds. Now, one of the laws, one of the things people are required to do now, they don't always do it, but at the bottom of those emails, almost every email you get now, especially if you're on a list or subscription, it'll say, do you want to opt out or unsubscribe, right? And the point of that is to say, I want out. I don't want any more. I've had enough. I mean, there are times when I'll sign up for an email list online on a website, and after about a week, I'm like, I don't need 14 different messages every day, right? I mean, anybody you do that? Yeah, I don't need all that. And so you unsubscribe or opt out, right? And so what you do is you say, I want out. I just, I'm done. And sometimes in life, I feel the temptation when difficulties come to want to click the unsubscribe button or the opt-out feature and say, just get me out. But if it's God's plan, and if we're in the midst of it, we need to learn how to walk through it, not around it. Um, Yesterday, uh, I was keeping up with all that was going on in the college football world through Twitter. I follow a lot of sports writers, so I'm watching as they give score and updates and all that. I was away from the television, which, by the way, we 
lost the remote control on the first day of college football season. I came dangerously close to instituting the original remote control, which would have been Eli, all right? But we, we didn't have to. We found a replacement, okay? But we, uh, I was keeping up on Twitter. And, you know, in the midst of all the things about um, Ole Miss losing to Jacksonville State and Florida looking bad and I don't want to look at the Oregon score that plays Tennessee next week, all that, you know, all that stuff. In the midst of it was a local pastor that I follow that just wrote my biggest fear this week. Now, he's the pastor at Clearview Baptist Church in Franklin. His name's Mark Marshall. I don't know him personally. I follow him on Twitter. He follows me. I've noticed some of his posts. But I've noticed over the last few weeks he is having open-heart surgery on Wednesday. And so I thought, well, I wonder what, you know, that's an interesting, that's one of those things that I went to the blog to see what it was. And so he wrote, right, it's a short blog, and he, he wrote, and you, I think you can go to markmarshall.blogspot.com and look at it if you want to, but he just wrote a real brief thing, and he just said, my biggest fear this week is not what might happen in the surgery. He said, the truth is, I know that the surgery could go bad, and I might not wake up, I might not be here. He goes, that didn't really scare me, because as a believer in Jesus Christ, if I don't wake up from surgery, then to die is gain. He said, my biggest fear this week is that I will miss whatever God is trying to teach me through this incident. My biggest fear is that I will miss whatever God is trying to teach me through the surgery. Now I want to tell you, when you're in the midst of real difficulty, one of the hardest things to do is to have that kind of perspective. And so what I want us to do today is to say, as we look into Hebrews in just a moment, how do we not go down a path where we miss? Because what we're going to look at today is what happens in your life when you decide to short circuit or to go around the trial that God may have placed you in. Because God teaches us best sometimes in our pain. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I really like. And it just says this, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And the idea literally there is that when we experience pain, we are more ready to listen than at any other time in our lives. Um, walking around today, I, I'll try to walk around to some of the Sunday schools, and uh, I get to some when they've already started. Most of you don't start till 11.45, I mean 10.45 before 11 o'clock service, so I don't always hear you, but uh, the children's classes always start on time. They just, they do. They don't have, they don't get to talk about everything. They just start. And so I was walking by um, Actually, I was getting ready to go into Eli's Sunday school class, and I heard them doing an exercise about who should we listen to. And the idea was, who should we listen to in our lives? Who, what people, what, what time should we listen? And as I walked by, I heard Eli say that he should listen to his mommy and daddy. He, I think he saw me out of the corner of his eye. He was just trying to get some points. But they were talking about places we should listen. What I know in my life is, that I am most attentive and listening in difficulty. Now, we know that from experience. This coming week, we will uh, mark the ninth anniversary of 9-11. 
Now, it used to, 10 years ago, if I would have said 9-11, you would have immediately not thought of the World Trade Center or New York City or pilots or any of that. But now when even the phrase 9-11 is mentioned, all of that comes. Now, do you remember what it was like in the days following 9-11? Do you remember what the country's mood was like? I remember a couple of vivid things. One was I remember a, um, I remember a scene of Congress standing on the steps singing God Bless America. Now, I don't want to debate about whether their hearts were right or any of that, but just the fact that Republicans and Democrats were doing something together is an amazing thing. I remember in places all over the country that we had uh, we had uh, prayer meetings. We had time. I was I was a brand new pastor. I've been a pastor for about two weeks total in my life. I just graduated seminary, started pastoring, and I got asked to speak at the Friday night event at our community, and there were tons of people there from all different churches, and it was a worship service crying out to the Lord. Why? Because as a country, we were experiencing pain. And in that pain, we were looking for answers. Think about Haiti just a few months ago, right? Haiti was this country that before the earthquake ever hit, it was greatly impoverished. It was the poorest or one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth. They had people in abject poverty and need in Haiti before the earthquake ever hit. But immediately upon that earthquake hitting and the pain that those people were in, people rushed to their aid and are still doing so. Or Nashville in May, when we woke up on a Sunday morning, and suddenly on a Sunday morning we saw pictures that just absolutely astounded us. I, you know, I still remember that drive into church that morning and just the water that was on the road. And we have seen since that time Nashville and Goodlettsville and Hendersonville and Franklin and this entire area bond together and serve like no other time. Now, I haven't lived here but three years, but from people that talk, it was something that hadn't been seen, the outpouring, in a long time, if ever. Why? Because we were in the midst of difficulty. And so what we have to understand from C.S. Lewis' point of view, from Scripture's point of view, is this. Those moments of trial and difficulty are the times in our lives when God wants to speak to us the most. The problem is most of us try to numb our existence during that time instead of listening to the voice of God. This is what Oswald Chambers says about it. We say that there ought to be no sorrow but there is sorrow. And we have to receive ourselves in its fires. If we try to evade sorrows, refuse to lay our account with it, we are foolish. And so what Oswald Chambers is saying basically is that we must go through trials. We must endure them. And the idea is not to say they're not out there, or I don't want to know about them, or be in denial, but just say, how can I learn in the midst of it? How can I grow in the midst of it? How can God speak to me in the midst of it? Now, I want to talk about that today, going in a different direction. Talking literally about what happens when you don't follow God's plan in a trial. Chapter 12. We read earlier um, 
in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 7 and following about enduring hardship as discipline, God's treating you. No discipline in verse 11 seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest, and that's where we kind of ended our emphasis. But look at verse 12. He's talking to people that are in the midst of trial, they're in the midst of pain, they're in the midst of difficulty, they're having trouble, they don't know what to do, they don't know how to act, they don't know how to live, they're thinking of scrapping it on, leaving. And he says in verse 12, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Now let me tell you the first thing that happens when we begin to step outside of God's plan for our lives and begin to try to short-circuit what God is doing us even in the midst of trials is that if we're not careful, discouragement will quickly invade our lives. Now look at that picture there. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Now the actual description there of feeble arms and weak knees is... Um, a better understanding is of drooping hands. Drooping hands. Now think about that picture. Imagine if someone's walking to you and their hands are drooping and they're just kind of down. The description is first used in the wilderness with the Israelites when they were walking around and they were concerned about what was happening in their lives and that they seemed to be stuck in this never-ending cycle of being in the wilderness, that God was punishing them, God was teaching them, God was leveling with them after they had disobeyed God. And as they walked around and around and around, it says they developed drooping hands and weak knees. They just became discouraged. And when you decide to step out of God's plan for your life, when you decide to step away from what He is doing in the midst of trials, you will become discouraged. Now, the reason for that is this. Whenever you step outside of God's plan for your life, you decide to remove God from the equation. And when you remove God from the equation in a trial, discouragement naturally follows. And so the first thing he sees there is get rid of your drooping hands. And we need to quit being discouraged. Focus on the Lord. Verse 13 says, make level paths for your feet. The idea there is from the Old Testament. It actually comes from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26, but it is throughout the Old Testament. And the idea there is that when God's way is followed, it will make the path level. It will make it straight. It will make it direct. It will not be on a hill. It will not be bumpy. It won't be rough terrain. Last night, as uh, we were, uh, after supper, we went outside and played a little baseball. It was uh, beautiful yesterday, wasn't it? Absolutely beautiful. For some reason yesterday I was outside, the the word foretaste came to mind. You you know, that's a good old Baptist word that talks about that sometimes we get a glimpse, a foretaste of what heaven will be like, an, an initial taste of what it will be like. Yesterday was like a foretaste of fall divine, right? Football on TV, coolness in the air. It just felt like pumpkins ought to be out at the stores. It was just beautiful day. So we went outside and played some baseball and um, it was me and the boys and and, uh, we had our spectators and Susan and Maddie up on the hill and while I was not out there, the boys had set up the baseball field. And our backyard is a steep incline. And they had decided the best place to play baseball was on that steep incline, right? Well, here's the issue. When you play baseball with the boys, what do they want to do all the time? 
They want a badge, right? They want me to be the pitcher and fielder and backstop and all of that. And here's the other thing. Both of my boys are left-handed. I don't know how that happened. I'm not left-handed, but they swing the bat left-handed. And so every time they hit the ball left-handed, they're hitting it downhill. And when they hit it downhill, it always rolls all the way to the bottom into the ditch. And because they're batting, Daddy is the one that has to retrieve it. And so I spent several minutes running up and down that hill. And I have made an executive decision. When we play baseball this afternoon, it will be in our front yard because it is level, and I'm not chasing the ball down the hill, right? Why? Because it's much easier to walk, run, stand on level ground than it is on a sideways hill. Now, I've learned that about that hill because I mow it once a week, and it's easier on the flat ground than the hill. And so what he says here is, When you're in God's timing, when you're in God's plan, it is like walking on level ground instead of trying to fight an uphill or side hill battle. God will make it level. Now, here's the second thing he says is, if you don't, if you allow discouragement to take over and you don't strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees and you don't make your past levels, then this will happen. The lame may not be disabled but healed. What he basically says there is, if you're not careful, you move from discouragement to a very graphic word, which is dislocation. The actual word in the New Testament is, so that the lame may not be dislocated. Now, I mean that in two ways. One is you become dislocated. You become off the location God would have you to be. But the word it means here is literally that you will become like a dislocated limb on a person. Anybody ever seen somebody dislocate anything? Seen it? It is not a pleasant sight. My senior year of football, I played with a guy that was a really good linebacker. He ended up walking on at Tennessee after a couple of years. But he had an issue where he would occasionally dislocate his shoulder. We were pretty good friends, and he would come over, and, and he would... You know, the game would be going on, and he'd make a big hit on somebody, and he'd run over to the sideline, and even in all the football gear, you could tell it was dislocated. Why? Because it was just hanging, just hanging there. Now, he'd come over to the sideline, and the trainer would take it and pop it back in and send him back out. He was our all-state linebacker. He had to play, right? So, but the thing about it is, when it's dislocated, it is completely useless, Right? I mean, when your shoulder is dislocated, your elbow's dislocated, any other joint is dislocated, it is completely useless. And what it says here in Scripture, the picture here literally is, if you try to go around what God designs, if you try to go away from what God designs, if you try to get off the path God designs, then you will go from discouragement to dislocation. You're no longer on God's path, and as a result, you are useless to the kingdom of God. Now, that's pretty strong language, but that's what it means. That you are no longer able to be used for the kingdom of God. Now, it goes on to tell us the antidote. Strengthen your feeble knees, weak knees, arms, make level paths. Don't be lame so the disabled, but rather healed. Verse 14, this is how. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see 
the Lord. Here's what he says basically is this, that if you want to figure out how to get your back onto the game, how to get back on the right path, it's about two things. It's about treating each other well, and it's about following what God has called you to do. Now, I know that in a believer's life, one of the most difficult and and, uh, disheartening words is the word holiness. People hear that word, and they automatically think of the thou shalt not in Scripture. Right? Well, if I'm going to be holy, I can't fill in the blank. That's not what's intended here. In fact, I've begun studying for the next series that we'll be doing starting in two weeks. And we're going to do a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're going to tackle a commandment every week and talk about the Ten Commandments and what they mean for today. And I know that when you think about the Ten Commandments, which were God's kind of introduction into holy living for the people in the community of God, that would be Israel. When you think about the Ten Commandments, the first thing that comes to mind is that it's a bunch of thou shalt nots, right? But what was intended there was that the thou shalt nots would create freedom for what we could do. It wasn't intended to be limiting. It was intended to be freeing. Think about this. We go back to Adam and Eve. We talk about Adam and Eve a lot. There's this kind of the, the, what it is. It's the seminal. It's the original sin that is there. And what happens in the garden? God gives them an unbelievable garden of Eden, right? I mean, animals of all kinds, fruits, plants, trees of all kinds. And God puts them in this unbelievable garden. And he says, now you can't eat of this one tree. Now we read that as like, well, what is God doing limiting them? But the reality is it wasn't so much you can't eat of this one tree. It was you can eat of any tree you want except for this one. We focus on the limit, not on the freedom. Holiness is really about being freed up to live like God would intend for us to live. And there are some thou shalt nots, but they are limiting what we can do in order to unfurl us, to unleash us to live an amazing life. And so what he says here is that we ought to be living for God, taking everything we can, see to it, in verse 15, that no one misses the grace of God. The point there is, listen, if you don't walk through this as God intends for you to do, if you don't remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of your trial, if you try to short-circuit what God is doing, if you try to go around what God is intending, then you will miss out on God's blessing and grace. Here's what follows discouragement and dislocation. If you had a really good preacher, you'd have another D, but we don't, all right? It's a B. So discouragement, dislocation, that leads to bitterness. You just follow down uh, that pathway. You just go down the rabbit hole. You go from discouragement to dislocation to bitterness. Here's what it says. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You see, what happens in our lives is when we become discouraged, and we dislocate ourselves from what God intends, we suddenly begin to have a critical spirit that that flows from bitterness in our heart. I read a a tweet this week from a pastor in Chicago that just simply said, if there is criticism on your lips, there is unforgiveness in your heart. And the truth is that bitterness grows when we hold on to things that we shouldn't hold on to. I saw a story this week of a, a guy 
from the 1920s in the Chicago Observer. The Internet's amazing stuff that just comes up when you put in bitterness and uh, you can follow some leads through there. This guy was a guy that liked to help out his wife around the house. That's admirable. He would do things for her. He'd help with the dishes and he'd hang up paintings and different things. Well, apparently one night, and I know this is hard to believe, his wife criticized where he had hung a particular painting. Now, like I said, it's hard to believe, but just imagine that for a moment. She didn't exactly like the way it hung, okay? And so he got upset and said, that's fine. You don't like the way I hang a picture? I won't hang another picture. I won't do another dish. In fact, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to go in bed, and I'm going to lay in bed. I'm going to put a blindfold on my eyes, and when I'm in this house, I'm going to be in the bed blindfolded. How long do you think that lasted? Exactly, seven years. He laid in bed when he was at home with a blindfold on for seven years. Now, he finally got up after seven years. Any guesses why? The bed had become uncomfortable to him. All right? Now, here's the thing. We hear that and we think that is absolutely ridiculous, right? That's just ridiculous. Why in the world would you do that? But there are people in this room that have held on to bitterness about something somebody did to you for longer than that. All of us in this room sometimes dwell on things that have happened to us for weeks or months or years or decades. We can put on the happy face when the people are around or we can act like everything's okay, but within us that root of bitterness is growing. And it says in Scripture that that can prevent us from seeing God's grace. Here's the last thing. When we have discouragement that leads to dislocation, that leads to bitterness, it finally leads, and i got another D here, to destruction. That's what it says. See to it that no one misses the grace. No bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Here's what he gets to at the end of this argument. Is that when you try to move around what God is doing in your life, what you are doing is you are accepting temporary comfort or relief in exchange for the eternal blessings that God wants to bring. He remembers the story of Esau. You remember Esau, right? Jacob was his brother. Esau was, what, the oldest brother? Jacob was the youngest. And in that day and time, if you were the oldest, you got two-thirds of the inheritance. The youngest split the other third. So it was a major deal to be the oldest. And Jacob and Esau, now, it wasn't like he was the oldest by years, right? He was the oldest by a couple of minutes, right? I do know a couple of twins, and they do hold that over each other, who was born first, right? And so, but Esau comes out, and it's time for him to give his birthright. And it says for one meal, he gives up the blessing, and he loses the long-term benefits. What it says in Scripture is this. When we are walking through difficulty or a trial or problems in our lives, the natural thing, the human thing to want to do is to bring temporary relief, to get it over with. But that we must not forsake our commitment to the Lord in the midst of it. Otherwise, we're exchanging temporary relief 
for long-term benefits. Now, that applies in all kinds of situations. Remember Jesus being tempted by Satan? And he's tempted how? Jesus is, Satan tells him to do what? Turn rocks into, into bread, right? He tells him to jump from the top and people will rescue him. He takes him to the pinnacle and shows him the kingdoms and says, just bow down to me and you can have it all. Here's the thing. The, the temptation of Jesus is really not about those individual events. It's about short-circuiting God's plan. Because Jesus was eventually going to eat again, right? I mean, he didn't fast for the rest of his ministry. Jesus was going to be rescued by angels, and Jesus was going to be ruler over all of creation. But what did it take? It took death, burial, and resurrection. And what he's Satan is saying is, you can have it now. But Jesus knew it would only be temporary. For us, the reality is there are many times in our lives when we skip out on God's judgment or issues or trials and we miss out on eternal blessings because we miss out in that moment. How many times in your life have you given in to instant gratification and suffered long-term effects? How many times in your life have you short-circuited God's plan with your own ideas? Because whenever we do that, what we're doing is we're pulling ourselves out of a place where God blesses us and we're putting us on a path where we're on our own. It says here in Scripture, that when difficulties come, we are to strengthen our drooping arms and our weak knees, that we're to make level the path for our feet the same way that we do that through life, which is treating each other well and living with holiness and see that we don't miss the grace of God getting rid of that bitterness and that root of bitterness that might be coming and never exchanging momentary relief or gratification for long-term benefits. And I don't know where you are today, and I don't know what's going on in your life, but I would bet that there are some of you that are being tempted in various ways to take the shortcut route and to give up on long-term benefits because of immediate needs. And I would just ask you today, are you willing to follow God through whatever path that takes you?